Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Will you let me in? Or are you at capacity? Will you set me free? Are you holding on to history? Will you be sincere? Are you averse to honesty? Will you dare to hear those children marching on the street? Oh, God bless America, the heartache of mine. All right, uh, we're in for an exciting day today, a day that we've been excited about. Um, I believe she's been on two times before, but this, I think, is the first time we've had the opportunity to devote an entire episode to Heather Cox Richardson. The occasion for this uh, is her book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Uh, She is the author of the newsletter Letters from an American, which was the first breakout hit in the world of newsletters, I'm confident in saying, and and still is, I think, the most subscribed newsletter on Substack. Uh, And it is very exciting. Oh, by the way, she's a history professor at Boston College. I almost forgot that. Heather Cox Richardson, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. So, you know, one term that you've used recently uh, to describe things going on in Congress, specifically the House, is five-alarm fire. Uh, I thought it might be interesting to talk about yesterday's series of five-alarm fires. Uh, It gets into a lot of the stuff that gets covered in the book. Um, Yesterday, uh, Jasmine Crawford, a uh, representative from Texas, Democratic uh, representative from Texas, said, y'all want to guess, excuse me, she tweeted or X'd or whatever you do, uh, y'all want to guess how many almost fights we've had today. Y'all want to guess if they were people of color or, quote, emotional, unquote, women? Uh, Let's hear a little bit of what that sounded like. You're going to hear three altercations, all of which took place in Congress. Yesterday, we'll start with Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, a Republican from Oklahoma, challenging a Teamster. Uh, Then there's you'll hear a little clip recorded by NPR of a Republican representative accusing Kevin McCarthy of elbowing him in the back. Uh, Then we have tape of Representative James Comer yelling at Representative Jared Moskowitz and and then there's a little extra thing at the end. So here we go. A1, Kat. Pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been. Always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. 
Is that your right. solution, every poll? No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. No, no, you're okay. a United States senator. Sit down. Actively. Oh, okay. okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Chairman. it. Hold it. If Hold we can't, no, I have the mic. I'm sorry. This is Hold what it. he said. You'll have your time. Okay. Can I respond? Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> this is a hearing. And God knows the American people have enough of contempt for Congress. Let's not I don't make like it worse. Thugs and you, you have, and you have I don't like you because you just described yourself. Hold it. Sorry, Kevin. Didn't mean to elbow. Why'd you elbow me in the back, Kevin? Hey, Kevin, you got any guts? Jerk. You got so they sit there and the reporter said it right there. What kind of chicken move is that? You're you're pathetic, man. You are so pathetic. But you and Goldman, who is Mr. Trust Fund, continue to try to reclaiming my time. No, I'm not going to give you your time back. We can stop the clock. You all continue to, you look like a smurf here just going around and all this stuff. Now, listen. Mr. Chairman, you no, have. No, I'm going to tell you No, no, something. hold on. If we're, you if we're not on time, we You disinformation. You, you, you have you gone on TV and you said the president did something you illegal. You're doing stuff with your brother. The American people have the same question. Why should they believe He had an arm up there around. But he wasn't like this, but his arm was up there. Okay, well, don't compare what Draymond did to I'm not comparing. No, I'm just saying if it's the same. One gets Watch. ejected. Now, right now look at now look at his arm is not around this Okay, now he let his neck down right there. No, he let it go immediately. He let it go immediately. He let it go immediately. All right, the the last part. After all that happened in Congress. Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors uh, put a uh, opposing player, Rudy Gobert, in a chokehold, a pretty severe one that night. That's all what all the last bit of yelling about was. So, Heather Cox Richardson, sorry to cut into your time with all that, but you also wrote about this today. I I don't even know where to begin or what question to ask you, so I'll just let you respond any way you want. Shall we start with Smurfs? Yes. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Of all the comments, I thought that one was the one that really jumped out. Uh, he was referring to the fact that uh, Moskowitz was wearing a blue suit. Mm-hmm. And um, and Moskowitz, of course, went on to Twitter, now X, and made comments for the whole rest of the afternoon and then ended up trying to fundraise off of that comment. So I thought that was how pathetic can you get when you call one of your the best you can do is to call one of your opponents a smurf. It was sort of more pathetic than that because it was you look like a smurf just going around and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, really articulate. So uh, that was our Congress, folks. And that is not the first time we've had a moment like that in Congress. We've actually had fist fights before in the 1850s and in the 1890s. Um, But what you're really seeing, I think, is a group of people whose goal has been to shut down the government. And they've been able to play, if you will, play the minority, play the spoilers, play the people who just say no. And now they're supposed to be governing. And what that means is the Republicans are in the majority in the House of Representatives now, is that they are incredibly frustrated with each other because they can't manage to get anything done. And in the Senate, of course, that whole idea of, you know, I'm just going to throw my my weight around and you have to do what I say, you're seeing really dramatically with Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, who's refusing to let the promotions of our military officers go through. He's well over 400 at this point. And just being able to throw your weight around and say, no, 
I'm not going to do anything that this country wants you to do. That's kind of what we're seeing in Congress now. You know, you talked about the 1850s and the 1890s. More recently than that, and this is right in your book, um, in 2009, uh, President Obama addresses a joint se- session of Congress to discuss what's going to become the ACA. Uh, South Carolina Representative Joe Wilson shout out, you lie, in an astonishing breach of decorum that later earned him a reprimand from the House that he used to raise money from donors. <laughs> so there's, in a way, you see in 2009 some of the seeds uh, of this just breakdown of decorum, to use your word, here in, in 2023. Well, I think it can go be even earlier than that, because, of course, this whole idea of being a tough guy, slinging your weight around and, and slinging your gun and, and commanding other people was a key image that the far right picked up from the 1950s. Remember all the um, all the the uh, Westerns we had on TV in the 1960s, Mm -hmm. that was part of this whole idea that anybody who felt that the government should be working for the American people was somehow a socialist. What stood against that was this idea of this this American cowboy, this person doing it out there on his own. And that took a lot of different forms in the 1980s, especially with Ronald Reagan's cowboy hat and with Red Dawn from 1984, that very famous movie, the bloodiest movie in history at the time. You know, you can trace that on through here. But at the end of the day, this idea that what it means to be a man in America is to to demand that everybody do what you want is actually a really perverted version of what masculinity has traditionally meant in America, where more traditionally it has meant protecting the community, taking care of people, working hard, living, you know, a, a pretty clean life and trying to to move your community forward. And that, you know, I think we're we're long overdue for a return to that kind of community building masculinity. Yeah, it does seem as though we're going to keep being long overdue. And and I actually, I want to just pause over the Joe Wilson thing for a second, because there's two other things there that would be interesting to unpack. Very quickly, and, and you you mentioned it in connection with Moskowitz, too, it, it's hard for things to go so wrong in a politician's career, a Washington politician's career these days, that he or she cannot use it to raise money. I mean, Trump obviously is the master of that. He uses his mugshot to raise insane amounts of money. And, and I think that's enabled, Heather, by by social media. I, I think in a way that wasn't possible in 1890, you have immediate access with no guardrails and no gatekeepers to to a whole bunch of people whom you can sort of say, look what's happening to me, give me money. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I think that's I think you're absolutely right. And part of that comes from the 1950s and the advent of television. We get if you actually look at it, which there's no reason anybody but somebody like me would want to do, you can look at the 1952 Republican convention, which where they did have television, and it's so boring. It's just a bunch of guys in white shirts and black pants and hats walking around. I mean, it's totally boring. But once Eisenhower becomes the candidate that year, he, of course, has huge crowds following him because of World War II. And so his handlers recognize that they can use politics as advertise, you know, as as entertainment. The people will turn out to see a president if there's confetti and ticker tapes and, and parades and all of that sort of thing. And that begins this process of turning politics into entertainment. And of course, by the time you get to Richard Nixon in eight, 1968, 
he actually has Roger Ailes, who's going to go on to run the Fox News channel, um, as the the person who's handling him there. And they really try and handpick their audiences and make Nixon look like he's more exciting than in fact he is. And that idea of politics as entertainment has now been combined with politics as, you know, we think it's all a joke. Like it's, you know, think about even in well, even 10 years ago, somebody like Trump or somebody calling somebody else a smurf or any of the things that we now think are appalling, uh, people like me think are appalling, everybody would have thought was appalling 10 years ago. But part of what you're seeing now, I think, has been nurtured by Trump and Trump-like figures who are making fun of our system, saying, ah, oh, it's all it's all ridiculous. It's all a joke. We need to get rid of the government and we can make fun of it. And those two things have combined with social media to become a really toxic stew. Yeah, I, now I want to come back to all of that. But another thing that really leapt out from, at me reading the book is kind of the physics of politics and the unintended consequences that arrive, arise from the physics. I'm going to come back to that in the final segment. But, you know, you can look at the ascendance of Obama. And, you know, 2008, uh, the election night was just a very, very moving moment for so many of us. And I, I really felt like I was seeing something that I should have seen much earlier in my lifetime, but that had been a very long wait but it also created a kind of recrudescence of a certain kind of violence-infused uh, imagery on the right. Uh, and as you document very well in the book, um, the, the the sort of revival of a set of arguments that say anything black people or women or any other kind of marginalized minority, if anything they get, comes at the expense uh, of the white male majority. There, there's a way in which um, Obama's presidency kicked off the Tea Party, which kicked off a lot of the other stuff that's kind of spitting out Matt Gates and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene at this point. Well, yes, that's true. But remember, the Tea Party was not organic. That was an astroturfed organization mm -hmm. that came from people who were directing the Republican Party at the time and who were horrified by the arrival on the scene of a popular Democrat. So they were certainly able to leverage many things, including his race against Obama. But this was part of a much longer trajectory. So while the election of Obama did, in fact, touch off things like the Tea Party, like I say, that was organized not from the ground, uh, up, but from the top down. But we also got more dramatically the Supreme Court decisions of 2010, mm -hmm. including Citizens United. Citizens <laughs> United. And that opened the floodgates for the real pushing of the Republican ideology. And then in 2013, we get Shelby versus Holder, which guts the Voting Rights Act. And of course, that's under the John Roberts court. And John Roberts, his, his entire career had been spent trying to get rid of the 1965 voting Rights Act. So it, there's a much longer trajectory here, I think, that uses race and gender and class and anything it can get its hands on to retain power. And that, I think, is the the story that we really should be paying attention to, because you don't get a, a group like the Tea Party taking over the Supreme Court. That's coming from somewhere very different. So do I first, first of all, I should say you are you've become a hero to many, many people. Uh, and the, the enthusiasm on social media about the fact that you were coming on today is something that I don't see quite that fervently all that often. Um, and I think one of your superpowers is being a historian uh, because there is so much 
now that is explained in terms of history. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to sort of throw a batting uh, practice pitch to you to, so you can hit it. Uh, so this is another thing that happened very recently. House Speaker Mike Johnson told CNBC's Squawk Box he believes the Founding Fathers intended to keep government out of religion, but not the other way around. Um, Driving the news, the separation of church and state is a misnomer. People misunderstand it. Of course, it comes from a phrase that was in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote. It's not in the Constitution. What he was explaining was that they didn't want the government to encroach upon the church, not that they didn't want the principles of faith to encroach on our public life. It's exactly the opposite. That is the new Speaker of the House speaking. But notice, as usual, the invocation of history to explain or his version of history, to explain his thoughts now. But Heather, just comment. So this is one of the very dangerous things that's going on now. And with so many dangerous things going on, it is not getting as much attention as the other things are. And that's certainly understandable when you have somebody vying for president who is threatening to put 10 million people into large camps. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are reasons to be very nervous about other things. But one of the things that the radical right has done in the United States, and former President Trump really pushes this, is created the idea that there is a magical past back there in the, the, the founding era. And it's a magical past that they are reading all of their present day political principles onto, including the complete lie that the founding fathers did not want the the government to in, to intrude on the church, but they were fine with the church intruding on government. That's just wrong. I mean, I could sit here, we could do this for the rest of the, of the hour if you want, talking about all the ways in which the founders of the nation and the framers of the constitution went out of their way to make sure that we would not embed religion in our government because they had looked at the wars of religion all across Europe and not necessarily between Um, Christians and Muslims and some of the things that present day right-wing Americans focus on, but rather different sects within Christianity. And they recognize that that was an express train to blood running in the streets. So that's just ridiculous. But what they are trying to do is create this image of a, a perfect past that has been interrupted only by the intrusion of people who are standing against people like them. And the key to that is that they are arguing that they can get back to that. They can take their followers back to that so long as the country once again follows Mm -hmm. these specific laws that were laid down either by God or by the framers or by tradition or by any number of things that keep them in power. And anybody who stands in that way by arguing, for example, for compromise over the budget or for protection of LGBTQ plus rights, which, by the way, um, in the, the early founding of America, um, people were very aware of um, of gay people, etc. And there was plenty of uh, people that we would now at least think were, um, were experimenting with trans lifestyles and all that. That was very much around until very recently. We could talk about that more. But they are reading back into that period their version of what America is. And in order to get back to it, essentially, they need to put in place a dictator who's not going to pay attention to our laws, who's not going to pay attention to our multicultural society, and who's not going to pay attention to the idea that we have a right to have a say in our government, that our votes matter. And that's why that is so incredibly pernicious. 
Yeah, I mean, and just to sort of just for the sake of the record, um, the letter, and I would be remiss because I'm sitting here in Connecticut right now, is the letter from Jefferson to the Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut. And and in that letter, as he leads up to separation of, uh, of church and state, he talks about the Establishment Clause, which is about not making a law that establishes specific religion, which is kind of kind of the opposite of what uh, what Johnson says. You know, it reminds me also, Heather, of Winston Smith in 1984. People forget that Winston Smith's job in 1984, he works for a government agency called INGSOC, and his job is to go back and alter the records of the past so that they conform to the dictates of INGSOC. And that's where we get that quote, who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. Um, And it's almost like that's a description of where your mandate comes from, right? That that a lot of what you do in the newsletter in the book is to sort of say, well, that's that is actually not the past, as you just pointed out. That's exactly right, and that's that's part of what historians do. But I just want to point out that um, for the listeners, that when Winston Smith rewrites the pre- the past to to conform to the present, he then pushes the old past down the memory hole. That's where we get that term, the memory hole. Um, And that's, of course, from 1984. Um, George Orwell, who spent a lot of time worrying about these issues uh, after World War II. Um, So... um, so yeah, that's that part of what historians do is is if you will keep keeping people honest to say no, actually that's not what happened, and that's one of the reasons that that many people think that um, that we're somewhat dangerous to a rising authoritarian uh, organization. All right, uh, well, keep being dangerous. Uh, Heather Cox Richardson is going to be here with us the whole time. We take a little break here. We'll come back and we will talk very specifically about a person she referenced in the first segment. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Disorder from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless. 
All right, we're here with Heather Cox Richardson, historian, professor of history at Boston College, author of The Letters from an American Substack. Her new book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Um, I'm going to begin again with another clip because I, I want you to talk a little bit about what you refer to as uh, split screen America. And to do that, I'm going to play a clip from the Talking Feds podcast. You're going to hear, I think, Paul Krugman first, the economist, Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman first, and then Harry Littman, the host of Talking Feds right after this. Uh, this is B1 Cat. I'm the king of hate mail, but I got lots of correspondence. <laughs> and uh, it's actually striking how many of the letters are you uh, – Ivory Tower or whatever, you, you, you elite. Have you looked at the price of eggs lately? And yeah, I have looked at the price of eggs. Eggs happens to be one of those swings where the price really has come down a lot. But, uh, you know, it's not simply a, a slowing rate of inflation, but an actual sharp price decline. But that's not the narrative. I saw that study. A very high percentage of people just believe that unemployment, which is near a 50 year low, is actually. Uh, near 50-year high, and it's got a political dimension as well, which is bizarre. So self-identified Republicans are much more likely to believe that than others. And again, going back to Stephanie's point, that's notwithstanding that they would largely say they're doing okay, but their perceptions of how the economy is doing overall is very sour in a distorted, I would say even false way, but breaking down around political lines. And that was all said, Heather, before, even before the kind of zeroing or flatlining of inflation that led to this incredible stock market rally. Um, but, but talk about that split screen. I think they're describing what you're describing. Well, actually, when I talked about a split screen, the thing that has really stayed in my mind and made it very hard to write the nightly letter is that on the one hand, you have Republicans led by the former president talking about how America is terrible, how the, you know, the the economy is terrible and everybody is terrible and we're invaded by, you know, undocumented immigrants and just nothing is good. And they are trying simply to shut down the government. And on the other side, you have the Biden administration and the Democrats who have put through the most extraordinary sweep of legislation that we've had since at least the Great Society and possibly since FDR in the 1930s. And at the same time, have really dramatically strengthened the United States in the in the global arena. And so, so it's very, very hard to put those two things in the same 1,200-word essay because one is we're all going to hell in a handbasket, and the other one is, hey, look, we're rebuilding the country for the 21st century. But I think in in which is what I was talking about. But I think in what you're pointing to here. You're, there's a couple of things to untangle. One is that when people think about the economy, it's very hard to think about it in the larger sense. So yes, our economy is roaring. Our uh, productivity is at a, 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 was 4.9% uh, in the last quarter, which is astonishing. I mean, if you remember when Trump was running for office, he promised that he would take it to 3% and that would be astonishing. Um, and here we are at 4.9. Unemployment is uh, incredibly, or employment is incredibly high. Unemployment is incredibly low. Wages have uh, more than kept pace with inflation, and wages are up significantly. But one of the things that 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 matters when we talk about those numbers is that the extraordinary gain in wages has been in the very bottom tier of people in the United States who had lost out so badly over the past 40 years. So when you're talking to the person on the street, 
athlete who, you know, has a, a good solid middle-class income, they may not see that kind of a jump in their income. And what they see is something that is very visceral, I think. And that is that because we did not have inflation for so long, we are accustomed to prices in the supermarket, especially having held steady for a long time. So now when you look at not the price of eggs, because in fact, the price of eggs has plummeted because the reason they were so high at the beginning of Biden's term is because of the avian flu, which killed off a lot of our egg laying flock, not our meat flock, weirdly. I don't know anything about chickens, but but I did notice that. Um, and uh, but other prices that we are accustomed to seeing at two dollars are suddenly five dollars. Now, what's made up the difference, of course, in the in the numbers that came out yesterday that said we had flat, there had been no inflation in the month of October, is that gas prices really, really have come down. Housing prices are starting to stabilize, and the prices of food, for example, and other items are not skyrocketing the way they were, in part because we've had such extraordinary price gouging. And you can see that if anybody's interested by looking at the profits that major corporations are posting. And they are posting record profits, which says they're charging way more money for the same product than they used to. So one thing I want to just spend a moment on, because it kind of ties into what we were just talking about here and about that split screen effect. And I should say, yes, even in today's newsletter where you write about all of the crazy altercations that happened yesterday, then you balance that with actually substantive, life-improving uh, things that the, the Biden administration has done. But one thing that you, one point that you've made uh, in the past is that maybe we spend a little bit much too much time on leaders. On there have always been charlatan political charlatans. There have always been authoritarian leaders. There have always been people trying to lead us down a, a primrose path towards a pretty hellish reality, but they don't always get traction. And and that maybe the more important question is not why is there this horrible authoritarian leader? Why is there a Trump right now? But why do people follow Trump? And and that's kind of tied in somehow to the believing in one of two different realities. Yes. And that's, I think, the central question. And it's one that Eric Hoffer, who was a longshoreman mm -hmm. in San Francisco after World War II, identified. Everybody was out there saying, "Yeah, we got to understand Hitler. We got to understand Mussolini. And he said, no, we don't. Every generation has its Hitlers and its Mussolinis. What we need to understand are the people who suddenly decide to follow those people, which I thought was just brilliant the first time I ran across it. And what he argued was that the way you get a strong man is to have a population that is disaffected, usually economically, but often culturally or religiously or socially. And they they are um, primed by language that says, hey, listen, you could be important again, but the those people over there and who those people are doesn't matter. Those people over there are preventing you from being as great as you could be. And of course, that exactly parallels what the Republican Party has done since at least the 1980s, and I would suggest back to the 1960s with uh, Richard Nixon, who very deliberately used uh, his vice president Spiro Agnew to engage in what they called positive polarization, that is dividing the American people in two so that their voters would feel that they were under siege and would continue to vote for Nixon. So they they created, I think, between 1981 and uh, 2015, a population that felt that it was falling behind economically because it was. I mean, the, the, the laws since 1980 have dramatically concentrated wealth at the very top of the scale. But at the same time, 
when they convinced their followers that their problem was not this legislation, their problem was, in fact, those people. And those people were attacking Christmas. They were attacking families. They were attacking, you know, gender roles. They were attacking race, race traditions. They were attacking things that that population then gathered around as part of their identity. And that made them very susceptible to the arrival of somebody like Donald Trump, who said, listen, I can fix this. I alone can take you back to that world where you used to be important. Yeah. And let's talk about his rhetoric about, quote unquote, those people, as you say. Um, so on Veterans Day, uh, he used the other V word. He said, in honor of our great veterans, on Veterans Day, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxist, racist, and radical left, th- uh, radical left thugs that live like vermin but within the confines of our country, lie, steal, and cheat on elections, and will do anything possible, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and the American dream. Um, and you and a lot of other historians pointed out the vermin isn't just a word seized out of nowhere. This is a word that has a certain pedigree, so to speak. So maybe say something about that. Well, I love the idea of vermin with pedigrees. <laughs> um, uh Yeah, it was a very important word, but it was an even more important concept. And that is when a leader begins to identify his opponents by terms that that reference bugs or rodents, especially, although occasionally it can also be something like floods. You see that in in Hungary, for example, some something that is natural. Um, that is a sign of the attempt to dehumanize your opponents because it's very hard for humans to want to kill each other. That's something we have to get over. There's a number of ways that soldiers can get over that. And one of the ways a society does it, and by the way, the United States did this against the Japanese in World War II. And, and in Rwanda, the same was true as well. The the way you promote the killing of your enemies en masse, like in a genocide, for example, is by referencing them as bugs or rodents. And the fact that he did that, first of all, was um, it was a huge sign, although I will say that Donald Trump Jr. has done it repeatedly. I've watched him now since early in the Trump administration using that sort of dehumanized language. So this didn't come out of nowhere. So that's the first piece. But the other piece that I thought was interesting, and I'm not sure if anybody else picked it up, and that was that the reality is, and when I say reality, I mean every single poll you look at, you know, is that the vast majority of Americans, and by that I mean over 80% in some cases, are in general agreement about the fact we're all kind of here being what is known in, in the political science world as liberals. That means we believe in a government that protects individual rights. And in the United States, in order to protect those individual rights, the government regulates business so that businessmen can't, you know, pay their workers pennies or do what somebody did um, long ago before we had a liberal government in Arizona, which was to take his workers who were mumbling about conditions, put them in a bus, drive them to the middle of the desert and push them out of the bus to find their way back to water in whatever way they could. Employers can't do that because of regulation. 
uh, we the a liberal government also provides a basic social safety net like Social Security and Medicare, um, you know, SNAP benefits, things to help people out when they hit on hard times. It promotes infrastructure like roads and bridges and broadband and the things that people can't do on their own. And it protects civil rights, especially civil rights in the states, so that you can't have a government in a state taken over by a small group of people who decide that they're going to discriminate against an entire race or a gender or even somebody who lives in the next town. You can't do that. So most of us believe in that. We argue about what exactly that means to us, whether I want this protected or you want that protected. But but generally, we agree with that. One of the things that Trump did in that vermin post was he took all of us, all of those people, and he said we were the far left. We were communists. We were Marxists. We were people who wanted to destroy America. And that was really significant. And I called that out because it's language that's been floating around and it's really imprecise because in the United States, which is all I'll talk about, the left communists, for example, or Marxists are people who don't believe in the liberal government. They don't believe in that system because they believe it has been so corrupted since its beginning, either by the very wealthy or by racists or by sexists, that it needs to be torn down and rebuilt, although they're not terribly good on how to rebuild it. The same is true on the far right, the idea that they are trying to tear down that that liberal government that the rest of us like. But the crucial piece here is that Trump is trying to build up the radical right by calling all of us the radical left. And it's simply not true. If you look, for example, at why they're pushing so hard on the idea that academics are taking over the world is because there are some people on the left in the academy. But let me promise you, professors don't have a lot of power. What's really our problem in the moment is that far right that is trying to destroy democracy. And that's what he is trying to sort of gloss over by saying anybody who disagrees with me, all 80% of you are leftist communists who are trying to destroy the United States government, when in fact, the opposite is true. It's that small group, the 20 to 30% of Trump supporters who want to destroy democracy in order to impose their will on the rest of us. Yeah, when they were calling uh, Obama a Marxist, uh, which they and they call Biden a socialist. Um, I mean, these are center left Democrats. I, I would often find myself in conversations with uh, very, very conservative critics of Obama, where I would say, "You understand that for somebody like me, Obama is so not a Marxist or a socialist, and he isn't even really far enough to the left to really be truly satisfying." You know, he the ACA would be his his big thing there. But other than that, I don't really see him in those terms. They were astonished. They really thought. He some Marxist. Um, so, um, I didn't so, just, so, yeah, go ahead. so on that, I would say Obama was actually to the right of Eisenhower. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about him being center left, I'm not sure you can make that case. The ACA was actually originally developed by a right wing think tank. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And I mean, obviously, um, Nixon also had some policies that are a little bit to the left uh, of anything that Obama contemplated. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And just in the time we've got here, though, um, we're going to have to take a break pretty soon. But we should say a little bit more about the way that Donald Trump uses language. It's not just words like vermin. Um, I'm going to play a clip to you. This is a clip from uh, 60 Minutes in Australia. Uh, last month where they, they had these audio recordings of Australian billionaire Anthony Pratt, who was an ally and admirer uh, of Donald Trump, talking about his experience with former President Donald Trump. This is A2Cat. On the tapes, Anthony Pratt admires Trump's ruthlessness while savaging his ethics. He knows exactly what to say and what not to say so that he avoids jail. 
but gets so close to it that it looks to everyone like he's breaking the law. Like he won't go up to someone and say, I want you to kill someone. He'll say, he'll send someone to tell someone to kill someone. And that calls to mind also the the brief that was just filed by Jack Smith, uh, who uh, says uh, about Trump, there has never been a criminal case in which a court has granted a defendant an unfettered right to try his case in the media, malign the prosecutor and his family. And after threatening witnesses, if you come after me, I'm coming after you, target specific witnesses with attacks on their character and credibility, calling one a weakling, uh, another a coward, and suggesting that another's actions warrant punishment of death. Um, you know, the way that Trump uses language and seems to be able to thread this needle or, or play kind of a game with, of, of chicken with people who might have the power to impose a gag order on him, um, the stuff that Pratt says on that tape, Heather, I'd just like you to, to react. So my take on Trump has always been that he is not a politician. He's a salesman and he sells people himself. He sells them. He tells them what they want to hear. So they are sold on him. And I have never met the man, but I would guess that in person, if he wants something out of you, he is charming beyond belief that this is how he has managed, for example, to get people to supply goods for his um, his hotels and then stiff them on the payment because they were so convinced that he was, you know, they were going to be his guy and they were going to be the ones who provided all those pianos for that poor man, for example. And then once he had what he wanted out of them, he just chewed them up and spit them out. So partly it's his use of language, partly it's his personality and his ability to read people at which he's always been spectacular. But you're identifying something else. And that is the way in which he uses language to essentially break the law. Because I think if you stand back without looking at the details of cases, his behavior is certainly outside the bounds of normal social interactions. How was that put for someone who's neither a lawyer nor a psychologist? But they, but he does, in fact, push people right up to the edge, uh, goes right up to the edge of what is legally acceptable. And that's a real issue for the legal system now, because, in fact, he is basically, if you look at the way he's talking, he is, in fact, has given up on on the legal cases. He knows he's going to lose the legal cases. So his lawyers are not actually even trying to make legal arguments. What they're doing is they are salting the media with language that they hope will Im- will inspire his followers to be so horrible to the people who are coming, who are witnesses, for example, or who are acting in the, the judicial system, that they will back off. He's essentially trying to intimidate everybody to backing off from him. And in the past, that has worked for him. Obviously, if you look at the fact he's gotten away with as much as he has, I'm not at all sure it's going to work for him this time around. The people that he's up against, people like Fawnie Willis, for example, in Georgia, are not the kind to say, oh, yes, I'm scared. They're real people who have real stakes in American democracy, as well as in their own states or in the legal system. And I'm just not sure it's going to continue to work. All right. We have to take a quick break. We'll have a little bit more time left with our wonderful guest, Heather Cox Richardson, right after this.
All right, uh, very quickly, our technical producer today was Kat Pastor. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She produced this episode. This episode is with Heather Cox Richardson, author of Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, uh, and, of course, uh, the writer of the newsletter, Letters from an American. So I want to talk a little bit about you and what you're doing, and, and I want to talk about it in a specific context. And You can either sign on to this or dispute it. But I think it's kind of interesting the way women – we began with clips from men – fighting or almost fighting in Congress. I think women are playing this really interesting role in creating their own um, journalism media and and other kinds of messaging systems right now. Uh, I think you're in the vanguard of it. Uh, I would also mention Alison Gill of MSW Media. She she started with Mueller, she wrote, but now she has a whole bunch of podcasts, including Clean Up on Aisle 45 and Daily Beans. Uh, I was looking today, Joyce Vance writes a terrific newsletter called Civil Discourse, and I was on X today. And Molly Katzen, the author of the Moosewood Cookbook from ages ago, I bet you have a couple of tattered copies uh, in your house too, Heather. She was retweeting uh, Joyce Vance, and I thought, wow, there's something happening here. There's something happening here, you know, that Molly Katzen comes out of the woodwork to to retweet Joyce Vance. And I think to that whole list of names, you might be tempted to add a certain Taylor Swift. Could you just talk a little bit about what I just said anyway and how you see this, whether you think there is kind of something going on here? I'm so glad you are the first person, the first interview I've ever done who identifies this. And and absolutely, there is a big change going on in American politics. And what you've identified is the people in the press who are talking about politics and really garnering huge followings doing that. But there is a huge movement across this country of women stepping up to make their voices heard in American politics. And it's absolutely under the radar screen. I've tried to call people's attention to it again and again, and I'm told it's a women's story. And then I look at what a difference organizations like Red, Wine, and Blue have made in voting in Ohio and Pennsylvania, for example, or I look at the sheer numbers of people who are running for school board offices, who are running for town offices, who are stepping up to the plate, who were apathetic before or felt that they were not welcome in American politics. And I think this is not a woman's story. This is a story of women who began to diverge from male voting patterns in 1980, basically saying, you know, we're tired of taking a back seat. And the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health decision of June of 19... uh, of 2022 really made people recognize that they had to take back American politics or they were going to be back at the, you know, back at, at the, the, the 1920s again. So does Taylor Swift belong in this conversation? So I, you're probably referring to a conversation I had with somebody else, and that yes. was, yes, uh, Taylor Swift, once again, is another person who has found her voice. And one of the things that really impressed me about her tour this year, which is I understand she was discouraged from doing because she was told it would lose money, and it became, of course, the highest grossing tour in history, was that it was multi-generational. And I thought that was really important because the the number of things we have out there nowadays that are multi-generational and that certainly sweep in this many people for a multi-generational experience are few and far between. And she was turning out mothers and daughters and sisters and aunts and this world of female friendships that was not just about politics, but it was definitely empowering in a way that she her lyrics, I think, reinforce. 
You know, I, I see a little, a, bit, a little of that towards the end of your book. Uh, you talk about how, in an odd way, the dominance uh, of the Southern Democrats and the kind of coalition that the, the Democrats brought um, put together uh, in the latter half of the 19th century kind of set the stage or set up a, a bunch of pieces on a board that kind of turned into the New Deal. But there's... Um, there's a which is an irony, obviously an un- unanticipated consequence. But there's a segment here where you say, "Let me see, let me find it." While much of the white South was looking backward, the rest of the country was full of new voices, speaking unfamiliar dialects and languages, and, and new music like ragtime and cowboy songs. The nation's streets, offices, factories, and schools were full of people who wore clothes from other countries and ate foods that native-born Americans found exotic, and so on. There's a way in which cultural shifts and political shifts kind of go hand in hand. And if there's any way to sort of squeeze a little bit of hope out of the scenario that you're you're painting here, maybe it's somewhere in there. But I, uh, I, we just have a couple minutes left, but I'd love to hear you wrap things up any way you want to, really. I don't think we have to squeeze hope out. I yeah. think what you're seeing is the same sort of ferment and excitement and creativity now that we had in the 1890s. And yes, we're all focusing on the reactionary white core that's trying to take us back to the past. But the truth is, everywhere you look around us, you see people people reclaiming democracy, making it have its own rebirth. This has happened repeatedly in our past. We're certainly on a knife edge. We could go either way. But in the past, Americans have always chosen to move forward. And when they do, it's an extraordinary time of creativity and new ideas and really a new future. Why does it seem so dark then? I mean, I, I really, you know, all of us who, who care about democracy feel as though this is kind of an existential election that's coming in, in 2024. Why does it feel so dark up in the sky when we look up? It is an existential election. We do have to turn out for it. We do have to work hard for it. It feels as if it is if if, if this is it, it feels as if it is existential because those reactionaries have tied up the central nodes of our democracy. The Republican dominated states, the Electoral College, the Supreme Court, the Senate, um, the with the filibuster. They have managed to slow down and stop our democracy. And and if in fact we let that continue, the future in the short term at least is going to be dark indeed but remember in in 20 by 2028 those uh the central piece of the trump coalition which is very much older than all of the other coalitions will have been ushered off stage and the the long-term future of this country will be bright it would be nice if we didn't have to go through a lot of crap ahead of time. So let's make it happen in 2024. All right. I'm 69. Now I have to live to 2028. I'm going to eat more vegetables. <laughs> uh, Heather Cox Richardson, uh, the book is Democracy, Awakening Notes on the State of America. Thank you so much for sharing yourself with us today. Thank you for having me. And we'll say goodbye. Thanks to Lily. Thanks to Kat. Of course, thanks to Heather Cox Richardson. Make shining glass where the time of our lives is all we have, and we get a chance to say before we ease away for all the love you left behind. You can have mine.